Good morning and welcome to our Tuesday morning Law and Gospel devotional. I'm Eric Sorensen, pastor at Hillside Church in Roxbury, New Jersey, contributor to 1517 in numerous ways, including uh, serving on their relation and development team. And each Tuesday morning, it's my goal to go through a passage of scripture, usually from the upcoming weekend's lectionary texts, to discover where God's two words are for us, both his law and his gospel. Uh, usually, I mean, for the most most uh, of the time, we've been looking at the Old Testament lectionary text, but this week we're actually going to look at the epistle text because this text is is a little bit unique. And what I mean by that is, it, you know, most of the passages we're looking to try and discover what God's law says to us and what God's gospel says to us in the passage. But in this passage, it actually describes the law and gospel for us. It's actually one of these sort of cornerstone passages that Luther came to when he was uh, discovering this distinction that is found all over God's word. And that just happens to be the epistle uh, text for this weekend. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 through 13. So without further ado, let's go ahead and bring up our slides for today. Uh, first of all, I always like to give just a little background and setting as far as what's going on in this weekend's lectionary. And of course, the gospel for this upcoming Sunday is Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 9, which is the story of Jesus's transfiguration before uh, Peter, James, and John, his sort of closest inner core of uh, disciples. And of course, what do they see there at the transfiguration? Well, they see Moses and Elijah, who are really meant to represent the law and the prophets. In other words, all of God's word. And what, what's striking about that passage, don't worry, I won't give away uh, your preacher's sermon this weekend, or if you're a preacher, don't worry, I won't give away too much. But one of the things that's very striking, I think the big idea behind that passage, is that both the law and the prophets submit to Christ. That, in fact, God, the Father shows up and says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And there's an implication in there that they are to that everyone is to listen to him above all things, that Jesus is the fullest revelation of God to the world. And so I love how in even the painting I've chosen for today, you can see Elijah pointing at Jesus, that indeed all of the law and prophets point to him, as Jesus tells his disciples in the last chapter of Luke on the road to Emmaus. And so the passage for us today, 2 Corinthians 3, 4 through 13, really explains for us why the gospel brought by Christ, the good news brought by Christ, is superior to the news that is revealed in the law. Or I, I guess I better should put it, um, the, the, the demands that are given to us in the law, the, the instructions that are given to us in the law. Why is it that the gospel is in fact the final word, the uh, the better word, as Paul will put it, and as Lucas Cronach in this painting here describes for us as he contrasts both the law and the gospel. So that's what we're going to look at today. And the way, the way Paul phrases it, he doesn't use the terms law and gospel, but in fact he uses the phrase letter and spirit. And so that's, that's sort of, first we're going to look at the ministry of the letter, then we'll look at the ministry of the spirit as he describes it in the passage. So let's begin 2 Corinthians 3, verses 4 through 6. It says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, 
but of the Spirit. <clears throat> now, Paul here is sort of giving a defense for why he can preach what he does, why he has any uh, ability to preach at all. And really, the, the, the big things he wants you to know, he wants to make two things abundantly clear. One, he has no power within himself to be an effective minister of the gospel. Indeed, that's true for every preacher. Every preacher, really, it's not about them. It's not about us. It's about what God chooses to use us to do. And you, we're really just the mouthpiece for his word, or at least that's what we're supposed to be. And so that leads to the second thing where Paul basically says, everything I'm telling you is not from me, but from the Spirit. Indeed, the apostles could make such a, a claim. Nevertheless, Paul wants everybody to know, first and foremost, I'm nobody. I'm not anything important. What is important is the message the Spirit has given us to proclaim. And to the degree that a preacher is preaching God's word, they are also giving what the Spirit has given us to proclaim today. This is the way Luther talks about it. Quote, he puts into our heart and mouth what we should say and impresses it upon your heart through the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we cannot ascribe to ourselves any honor therein, cannot seek our own glory as the self-instructed and proud spirits do. We must give to God alone the honor and must glory in the fact that by his grace and power, he works in you unto salvation through the office committed unto us. Indeed, I can't say amen enough to that. So now let's look at the rest of the text. And it really points to us, uh, points out for us a contrast in the ministry of the letter, and the ministry of the Spirit. Paul says this, For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought, brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. End of reading. All right, let's begin. What is the contrast here between the letter and the Spirit? Well, first, let's look at the, the ministry of the letter. Paul here employs the word letter, Luther says, in such contemptuous sense in reference to the law, though the law is nevertheless the word of God, when he compares it with the ministry of the gospel. The letter is to him the doctrine of the Ten Commandments, which teach how we should obey God, honor parents, love our neighbor, and so on. The very best doctrine to be found in all books, sermons, and schools. Luther says what he's referencing when he says the letter is, in fact, the law. And yet, when Paul compares the law to the Spirit, or what Luther will see as gospel, and what I think I'll be able to show by the end of our time here today, it's as if Paul is talking almost contemptuously about this very heart of God's word. Now, what does he say the law does? Well, the ministry of the letter kills. Yes, Paul is abundantly clear about that right from the beginning. The letter kills, the spirit gives life. He says the ministry of the letter causes sinners to hide. 
Indeed. You don't have to be uh, a theologian to know that this is true. Go back to our very first parents in the garden. What's the first thing they do upon uh, rebelling against God, upon sinning? They try to hide from him. And they try to hide from each other. And the fact is, we've been doing the same thing ever since. The natural human inclination is to hide from God, to hide from one another, to not allow ourselves to be vulnerable in any way before the face of God, because instead of it being a loving gaze, naturally, we think it's a terrifying gaze. The letter of the law reinforces that all the more, because as the law is preached to us, even though it tells us what we ought to do, we recognize we haven't done it. And it doesn't give any relief. It doesn't give any respite. It simply says, do this or else. That's the law. That's the ministry of the letter. Indeed, when Moses came down from receiving the law, the people had to hide from him because he was glowing with the glory of God and they didn't, they didn't like it. They didn't think, oh, well, that's beautiful. No, they were in fact terrified. The ministry of the letter condemns. Indeed, if you look at the way Luther will talk about the law, this is the chief use of the law. This is the purpose, the overarching purpose of the law. As much as we might think it's to instruct us and to guide us, it actually is meant to convict us, to condemn us. It is meant to shut our mouths from making excuses, as Paul will say in his letter to the Romans. It, it shows us where we are falling short. And that's really always what it's doing. As our confessions will say, the, the Book of Concord says, the law is always accusing. That's always part of its function. And so the ministry of the letter, Paul says, quite strikingly, is temporal. It's not permanent. That's the language he uses in our text. Now, you might say, well, wait, wait, wait. I thought none of the word of God will go away. Well, here's what it means. When it says um, it's not permanent, it means that it doesn't have any function in saving you. It's not going to be a part of what ultimately saves you. Here's how Luther put it. To illustrate, a law promulgated by a prince or the authorities of a city, if not enforced, remains merely an open letter, which makes a demand indeed, but ineffectually. That is the law's biggest problem. There's nothing wrong with the law. Everything's wrong with us. It tells us what to do. We don't naturally do it. Luther continues, similarly, God's law, although a teaching of supreme authority and the eternal will of God, must suffer itself to become a mere empty letter or husk. Without a quickening heart and devoid of fruit, the law is powerless. Let me emphasize that again, powerless to affect life and salvation. In other words, no matter what you do, the law says you cannot fix it. There's no possible way you can get out of the bind that you've created for yourself as a sinner. And that's true for every human being. We're all under the same sentence. The wages of sin is death. And there's no sin too small that doesn't count against us. That's what the law says. That's the ministry of the letter. It kills. It condemns. It doesn't give any wiggle room. It's harsh. Again, not the law's fault. The law is good. I want to say that over and over again because the natural tendency is to think, well, the law must be bad. No, the law is good. I'm bad. That's the issue. The law is great. We're not. 
Nevertheless, the ministry of the letter is not the only ministry in the word. The good news is there is a ministry of the Spirit, a.k.a. the gospel. And that comes with power. Where the law is ineffectual, the Spirit is in fact effective. It's doing something. The gospel contains the power of the Spirit within it. And that is what Paul is going to contrast now. He says, in, in contrast to the law that kills, the ministry of the Spirit gives life. Some of you might be watching WandaVision along with me right now, but you know that there's a character in that show that has been, well, apparently resurrected to new life. Well, that's what the Spirit does. Just as Vision's been given life, apparently, we've been given life by the Spirit, by the preaching of the gospel. The ministry of the Spirit has even more glory than the letter Paul says. They are not equal. I know, I know this is controversial stuff, but take it up with Paul. The ministry of the Spirit has even more glory than the letter. Why? Because it actually has the power to save. The ministry of the Spirit is a ministry of righteousness, Paul says. Isn't that shocking? The law is not called that. You would think the law would be a ministry of righteousness. The letter, certainly, it would make sense. No, it's a, it's a letter of condemnation. But the letter of the Spirit, the gospel, has the power to declare you and I righteous. Or as this early painting shows, it clothes us with Christ. The gospel comes and tells us that we have been imputed with his righteousness. There's nowhere that that's more clearly seen than in our baptism, where Paul says, in fact, in Galatians 3, that's where we are clothed with Christ in a phenomenal statement, clothed with his righteousness. And the ministry of the Spirit is permanent. It's the never-ending story. It's flying on Falcor. It is, it is never-ending. Paul talks about the law as being completely temporary, but the Spirit, the ministry of the gospel, is permanent, everlasting, never-ending. Therefore, Paul says, we are bold when coming to God, or as the author of Hebrews puts it, aka Apollos, maybe, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. All right, we're just about to wrap up, but I got to give you one more dynamite quote from Luther. You can actually find his uh, writing on this particular passage by just Googling Luther letter in the spirit, and you'll see, it'll be one of the first things that comes up on Google, his whole explication of this passage in which he delineates in a much greater detail uh, the, di the distinctions between the law and the gospel than certainly what I'm able to do here today. So I'd encourage you to check that out if you want to dig a little further. Here's what he says. Again, Paul, in terming the gospel, the ministration of the Spirit, would call attention to its power to produce in the hearts of men an effect wholly different from that of the law. It is accompanied by the Holy Spirit, and it creates a new heart. Man, driven into fear and anxiety by the preaching of the law, hears this gospel message, which instead of reminding him of God's demands, tells him what God has done for him. 
it points not to man's works, but to the work works of Christ and bids him confidently believe that for the sake of his son, God will forgive his sins and accept him as his child. And this message, when received in faith, immediately cheers and comforts the heart. The heart will no longer flee from God. Rather, it turns to him. Finding grace with God and experiencing his mercy, the heart feels drawn to him. It commences to call upon him and to treat and revere him as its beloved God. Amen and amen. That is some phenomenal good news. And that contrasts for you and I today the distinction between God's law and God's gospel, or the way Paul calls it, the letter and the spirit. Both are still involved in our Christian lives. The letter still needs to kill the sinner and still needs to drive us to Christ, really, every day. But the gospel is never-ending and will be the source of our eternal salvation for eternity to come. And that is our hope today. That is your hope today. I, I pray that you've been blessed by the reminder of God's word to you today and the goodness and purity of his gospel for you. Have a great week. We'll see you next Tuesday. God bless.